Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. An inquest into Canada's worst mass shooting has been underway for months now. And last Friday, we finally heard from the one living person who was there from the beginning. He was just becoming really paranoid with the COVID. So he would listen to the news from morning to night. He would talk about the world's going to end. He would obsess about this kind of stuff that he needed to protect what we had. And again, in my mind, he's talking crazy. Lisa Banfield was the common law spouse of the man who killed 22 people in Nova Scotia in April 2020. And I'm crawling, and then all of a sudden I heard gunshots, and there was a divot, and I went down into the divot, and I heard gunshots, and it seemed like it was getting closer, so then I just kept crawling. And while a lot of questions have been answered, not everyone is happy with the way the inquest is unfolding. Their anger is still very real, and they are looking for a place to put it. And unfortunately, I think that Lisa is bearing the brunt of a lot of that. That's one of the tragedies upon tragedies in this story. Greg Mercer is the Globe's Atlantic correspondent. He's on the show today to tell us what we learned from Lisa Banfield's testimony and how the shooting fits into a pattern of violence. This is The Decibel. Greg, thanks for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me. There's been a lot of anticipation building around last week's testimony from Lisa Banfield. Can you just briefly tell us who is Lisa Banfield? Yeah, so she was the gunman's common law wife for about 19 years. They met in 2001. Uh, she was, I think she was 30 or 31 years old when they met. Uh, both were recently divorced. Um, you know, she she testified on Friday. Initially, he seemed like the perfect guy. They met at a bar. He was very charming, you know, very romantic. He showed up with, you know, two dozen roses on their first date. Uh, and then she described how quickly, very quickly, their relationship turned to one of, of violence and coercion and, and uh, manipulation and, and intimidation, frankly. He was, a, he was a terrifying guy to live with, in her own words and according to the evidence of many people who knew him. So, yeah, she's a central figure. She was with him um, the night the rampage began. Uh, she was with him while he gathered his, you know, his weapons. She was charged with, uh, with supplying him some of the ammunition he used in the attack. Um, and so that's why people wanted to speak to her. She, she knew him better than arguably anyone else. And, and they wanted to hear from her directly about what she saw and why she didn't uh, report some of the things she saw to the police. Hmm. What was the mood like on Friday? Well, there was a lot of anticipation. People have waited more than two years to hear from her. Um, initially, you know, the room was was packed, um, but it was quite dramatic. Um, mo- many of those folks up and left in protest about halfway through the day um, to send a message to to the inquiry that they were upset that that they weren't going to be able to to ask any direct questions to to Lisa Banfield. So, can you just kind of explain a little bit there, like what exactly were they protesting by getting up? So, uh, yeah, they're, they're upset that the, the Mass Casualty Commission has adopted what they call a trauma-informed approach, which means they're, they're trying to protect people's mental health. They're, they know this was a traumatic event. 
They're worried that testimony uh, can be uh, very difficult for some of the people they've called. And to protect them, um, in some cases, they're giving them special accommodations. So in Lisa's mm-hmm. case, she did not have to answer questions from lawyers. She was not cross-examined. Um, and the, the inquiry's uh, defense of that was that, well, she's, you know, she's cooperated a lot. She's given us five interviews. There's really not much more she you know, has left to tell us a- about this. Hmm. Do you have a sense of what the family would want to ask Lisa Banfield? Like, what would they want out of the cross-questioning that, that they didn't hear already? Part of me thinks that it's almost a, a process of catharsis, the chance to almost ask the questions themselves, even if those questions have kind of been answered for them. But the way their lawyers have explained it, where, you know, there's specifics around how she escaped from the set of handcuffs that the gunman put her in the night the attack began, how she survived a night in the woods, um, you know, in sub-zero temperatures when she was, you know, dressed in a t-shirt and and yoga pants. There, you know, there, there are members of the families who are just skeptical of her story and they wanted a chance to put very specific questions to her. Um, you know, and they also had general questions about about whether she, you know, was driving around in this mock police car previously with him and why she didn't alert the police to that or to the weapons. Some of those questions were answered on Friday, but uh, there are other, you know, specific questions that they they'd feel they did not get answered. And so if you had to characterize, I guess, the family's response to this idea that she, she did not have to be cross-examined, how, how would you describe that? I mean, they were furious. I mean, the, this was one of the most critical witnesses in their view. They had a lot of questions that they wanted to put to her, and that was taken away from them by this approach. And that's not that's not Lisa's fault. Um, the commission's uh, decision to to use this trauma informed approach is, is really angered a lot of people, and they used it earlier in the process for some senior Mounties who were able to avoid cross examination. So, um, I think there's some hard questions that need to be asked about the way they are conducting this inquiry and whether it's hurting the way the public sees it. How how did Banfield seem to be doing on Friday? I think it was a very difficult day for her. I mean, her testimony was clearly quite painful for her. I mean, she struggled at times to keep her composure. I mean, this was clearly a, a horrific uh, relationship and event for her to go through. There's no question. I don't know how anyone could question that. So this was this was a difficult time for her to be on the stand. She did try to speak directly to the families who were very angry uh, and to say, look, I understand your anger and, and, and I don't blame you for your anger. Like our family, you know, feels for all those people and we're not angry that they're angry because if it was my family, I would feel the same way. But it's just angering because he did this and I didn't. And I would never contribute to anything like that. And she said, I want you to know I had nothing to do with this. And I would never have done anything if I'd have known he was planning this. Hmm. The sad part is many of the families didn't hear that message because they'd already walked out by that point. Hmm. Were there any big revelations from her testimony? There were a few things that I think uh, raised some eyebrows. I mean, one of the things that, that's concerning is that she described how twice there were violent assaults on her, where there were witnesses, where the police were aware of those assaults, and she was never questioned, right? Um, in one case, um, you know, like 18 years ago, there was an assault at a lake near her home. Um, he was taken away in the back of an RCMP cruiser. He was never charged. She was never questioned as the victim of this, this violent assault. 
you know, about eight years later, uh, it happened again where he was seen choking her on the ground. A neighbor called and complained to the police. She testified on Friday. No one from the Mounties ever called her to get her information, to ask her any basic questions. I mean, that's not what's supposed to happen when you report an assault to the police. So we know it happened on multiple occasions, according to multiple people. And that's a, that's a major problem. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, we, we just learned a little bit more from her about why she did not report, uh, you know, the police vehicle that he was building, why she did not report the, the guns that she knew he had. Essentially, she says it was out of fear, right? She was, she was afraid of him. He threatened her family. He threatened her. And she um, said she was terrified of doing anything about it. And so she just uh, she left it alone. Yeah, I think one of the, the the really striking things that emerged from from last week's testimony was this this very chilling portrait of of intimate partner violence (IPV). Uh, Banfield recounted, as you said, years of physical and verbal abuse. Uh, you you mentioned some of the things that people seemed to know about and and hadn't reported. I guess was there a reason why people hadn't talked to the police or or gone to the police on her behalf? There's a, there's a couple of things I would say on that. Uh, one, it does seem like people who knew him were widely afraid of him, right? I mean, and she even said, she said, there are grown men who know he has these guns, who know he is assaulting me, and they're afraid to do anything about it. So she said, if they're afraid, how can I do anything? She, she really didn't think there was anything she could do to prevent it. But he also, he, he just terrified people. He threatened people regularly. People knew he was well-armed, and they did not want to do anything to provoke him. I think he... He, he didn't just terrorize Lisa Banfield, but I mean the community around him and his own family. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the other thing that came out Friday in more detail was this. He had close relationships with some of the Mounties in his area uh, who came to him and spoke to him regularly about local crimes. He seemed you know, to have this rapport with them that I think helped get him out of some more serious questions around some of his own violent behavior. That's a significant problem. If if that's what's happening, that the police looked the other way when these complaints came in because they knew him and they thought, oh, Gabriel's a good guy. That's a serious problem. Hmm. We don't have to get into too many details here, but could you just, I guess, characterize the abuse that, that Banfield did talk about here? I mean, it, she described basically living with a monster. I mean, someone who would fly off the handle at the slightest provocation, who was very physically violent. Uh, who was sexually violent with her. Um, he controlled her uh, through fear. I mean, he pointed a gun at her head on multiple occasions and said, uh, I could blow your head off. I mean, this is the kind of stuff she described, not once or twice, but this happened frequently with him. So you can understand living in that kind of environment of, of fear with someone, why perhaps you don't do things to provoke them. Yeah. And so for people who, who question, well, why didn't she go to the police? You know, I think it helps to understand a little bit what she was living through in those in those years with with this guy who was, by many accounts, a psychopath. Uh, He's an unpredictable, very violent person. And and that's uh, that changes everything when you're trying to think about why wouldn't you do things a certain way? We know, according to a Johns Hopkins study, that in, in 68% of mass shootings, the shooter has a history of, of IPV, intimate partner violence. So with all these red flags, you say people or people around him seem to know this was going on as well. He even maybe had relationships with Mounties. Do we, are we any closer to understanding really why no one in the local authorities took people's concerns seriously here? 
We don't have a great answer for that, uh, other than we do know, you know, police locally seem to think that he was not the threat that everyone else believed that he was. Uh, and why that disconnect is there, it's not clear. I mean, they they came to his house, uh, you know, for weapons complaints uh, at least twice. Um, in one case, uh, Lisa covered for him. You know, she, she admitted on the stand Friday that she lied and said there's no weapons in the house and he's not here. She said she did that out of fear that if police searched the home, he would come out and start shooting. Mm-hmm. You know, another time they came to their cottage in port pic and uh, he showed an officer who he was very familiar with, uh, you know, some of his, he had a, an antique uh, musket and a replica gun. Neither one of them were, you know, operating, working firearms. And he said, this is all I have. They took him at his word and they left, mm-hmm. ha- never having seen his actual collection of, of real firearms. So we, we don't have a good explanation as to why credible complaints to the police about this guy just were not very thoroughly followed up on by the RCMP. As you mentioned a bit earlier, Greg, there's been a lot of speculation that Banfield was somehow in on the shootings. She was even initially charged with supplying the shooter with ammunition, uh, but those charges were dropped. Do we know why the police charged her with that in the first place? So... That's that's a really good question. Um, I mean, the, when it came to it, the Crown ultimately looked at the charges, looked at the evidence and said, it's not in the public interest to pursue this. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of damage was done by that charge. Um, and there are many people who have, who have, for them, that was enough reason to assume that she was in on this in some way. I mean, she has maintained consistently she had no idea what he was planning to do with the ammunition. And and let's not forget, it was not just her. It was her brother and her brother-in-law who were also charged with the same thing. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence that any of them had any idea what he was planning. He was a very strange man. He would collect weapons. He would collect ammunition for other reasons besides, uh, you know, a a rampage, right? And, And so we don't have a good explanation from the police on why other than we do know they were under a lot of pressure to do something. And, you know, they had a lot of questions themselves about could he have done all of this without any help? But I think the fact is that there's just not enough evidence there to suggest she knew anything about, you know, what this guy was was planning to do. And you said that that charge actually ended up doing, a, like, I guess, a little bit of damage there. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I think that people saw that as proof that she was in on this in some way, right? The, you know, before it ever went to trial, I mean, she's, and let's not forget, she's never been convicted of anything. Um, and in fact, it was deferred to Nova Scotia's restorative justice program, which means, you know, that it's an alternative to the courts. Um, that means when she's completed that process, that charge will be dropped. So she'll never be even charged. Um, but for many people, they saw that as evidence that she she was, you know, his assistant in this in some way. Uh, and they have not been able to see beyond that. Banfield testified on Friday, but the first time that the public actually heard from her was a couple of days before on, on Wednesday. And, and that was when commissioners played excerpts of uh, her interviews with the police, just describing what happened on the night of, of April 18th, 2020. I'm going to play something that's a little bit difficult to listen to, but I think it's important for people to to hear. So this clip is is first off from one of the commission's lawyers, Jillian Natu. Ms. Banfield began to hear a swishing kind of sound that she had never heard before, and she wondered what the perpetrator was doing. It was only later that she realized that she had heard the sound of him pouring gas around the cottage. 
and I could hear like a, a swishing sound, but I didn't know. Like I, I could hear a sound, a sound that I never heard before, and I didn't know what it was. So I came in, and I went to my bedroom and got undressed, and then I went to the kitchen. I went to get water. I don't know why I went to the kitchen. And then I heard the door rattling, so I ran to the room. And then I heard a noise I never heard before. And I'm thinking, like, what is he doing in my head? And is he going to come into my room, or is he just going to go to bed? And then he came into the room. yelling and I I don't know what he was saying because I just I don't know I wasn't I don't know I just I don't remember what the conversation was and and then he ripped the blankets down halfway and I'm like Gabriel go to bed and I put the blankets back up on me and prior to that he took my phone and my iPad and everything and threw it on the ground and jumped on it to break it so that it can be pretty hard to list to listen to there. This is this is Banfield reliving this horrible night with this testimony, Greg, with her putting all this out there. Will this finally put to rest, you think, the speculation that she was involved somehow in this shooting? Unfortunately, I don't think that it will. I think that because uh, the families were not allowed to ask her questions, even though many of those questions have since been answered through through other means because that was taken away from them by the inquiry. I don't think they're ever going to accept uh, the answers that they've received. I think they they felt like the one thing they wanted to question the gunman's spouse uh, they didn't get, and so uh, for many of those people, their they are their anger is still very real, and they are looking for a place to put it and. Unfortunately, I think that Lisa is bearing the brunt of a lot of that. Yeah, that's that's one of the tragedies upon tragedies in this story. Friday's testimony was part of something called violence, understanding mass casualties and the role of, of gender-based and intimate partner violence. This is part of the commission here. Earlier in the week, we'd heard a bit about the shooter's childhood. What did we learn there? That it was horrific, right? That, um, you know, that his father uh, was was a very violent person, and his father also had a very violent childhood. And we're learning that this was a multi generational issue. That you know that the gunman grew up watching his father beat his mother, and and we know that that violence continued. I mean, there was there were many times where the gunman said he wanted to kill his own father. There was violent assaults on his own family. This was a family um, ruled by violence, and. We know that that didn't begin with the gunman. It's that's one of the saddest things to see this in plain terms is how that pattern is repeated. Hearing from Banfield was major testimony that a lot of people were watching for in these proceedings. What is the next big thing, though, that that we can expect to hear from this inquiry, Greg? So we still have yet to hear from some of the top RCMP commanders in Nova Scotia. Uh, we also have, uh, we're anticipating hearing from the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky. Um, she's to testify at the end of August. Prior to that, Superintendent uh, Daryl Campbell is going to testify. The two of those people are are closely linked because of the scandal that, that broke last month and the allegations of political interference uh, from Ottawa in the investigation into the shooting. So 
We're going to hear from both of them uh, in a public forum and and, um, lawyers from families will be able to ask them questions. So those are going to be big days in the course of this inquiry. Greg, thank you so much for, for following this and taking the time to speak with me. Thanks, Manika. My pleasure. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our summer producer is Zara Kozema. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.